Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is the last week in um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so often I have guests on that I, you know, I know the answers to a lot of my questions and I, you know, we're in the same line of work or whatever. And, but today's guest, man, I learned so much from, uh, from this woman's work and from just this, this one conversation, um, Caroline Strassen. Man, she is something else. She is a multi-award winning narcissistic trauma-informed therapist and coach, best-selling author of Divorce Became My Superpower. She has completely transformed her life from being at rock, rock bottom after her divorce to a narcissist, and now she works on helping others process the trauma of narcissistic abuse for post-traumatic growth. I want everyone to listen to this, and I want you to understand the complexities, the complexity of narcissistic trauma and the healing journey that is necessary for those of us who have suffered from narcissistic trauma. And uh, Caroline is your She is your go-to. I'll tell you what. (laughs) Um, You know, she's got um, a narcissistic trauma recovery program and her narcissistic trauma unlocking method. And she talks a little bit about both of those in this episode. So uh, give it a listen. Learn, learn, learn as I have. And without further ado, here's Caroline Strawson. Carolyn Strassen, thank you so much for coming on and talking about narcissistic trauma and all of these things that you are such an incredible expert and sort of beacon of hope <laughs> about in the world. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a subject very close to my heart. It really is. Well, let's start there. I mean, why is it close to your heart? Let's give us a little, for those who don't know your story, Tell us your story and how you how you got to be doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't something as a seven-year-old little girl. I kind of thought, hey, I want to work in trauma and specialize in narcissistic abuse. That certainly wasn't on my agenda at that age. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd been brought up on all of those fairy tale books, you know, the happily ever after. And when I got married, I, I suppose that's what I thought I would have that happily ever after, you know, we got married. And, and of course, when you look back, even on my wedding day, I, I, I had doubts, but of course you, you put all of that down because you've got people there and you, people have paid to come and see that you've paid for the wedding. And, and for me, as, as time went on and we, we had our first son, 
um, together. And I just really embraced being a mum. I absolutely loved being a mum. Um, we then went on to think about having another child. And that's that's probably for me the time where I think things really started to shift and change because I, I had multiple miscarriages after I after we were had my son. And you know, that was that was a traumatic experience in itself. You know, all my friends around me that we'd got a sort of, you know, um, childbirth group from our first child, they were all then going on and having theirs. And there I was. Um, and every time I could get pregnant very easily, but I kept miscarrying. And my husband, he worked away a lot. He worked for an airline as cabin crew. And I felt really alone whilst I was going through all of that um, as well. But again, I'd got my son and I had my head down and I was just doing my thing. And eventually I fell pregnant again with my daughter. And then when I was six months pregnant with her, that was when I found out that there was the first affair and and of course finding that out at six months pregnant you know I couldn't even go out and get drunk <laughs> I couldn't do any of that thing <laughs> you know it was that what do you do and and it was really interesting even how I found out about that you know when I look back there was total denial you know there was a, a phone call of a, a voice message left and um you know my husband's name wasn't mentioned my son's name was mentioned but my ex-husband categorically to my face denied and just said it's just a coincidence I don't know who she is or anything else and of course my gut was screaming don't be ridiculous but then my husband was looking me in the eye and saying no I haven't done anything I even called my mum and dad my mum was still alive at that stage and I and they came round and I and I even got them to listen to this voice message and they even said, well, it doesn't look good, does it? And even then my husband looked at my parents right in the eye and completely denied it. And it was really only sort of 24 hours later, um, me doing some digging. And, and I tell you what, I'd be the best detective in the world. I really, really would in that scenario. That it almost got to the stage where he literally couldn't deny it anymore. But, you know, and then again, I'm sure your listeners will relate to all of this. What happened next is almost, you, you know, when I look back, I think, Caroline, what were you doing? But at the time, at that particular moment, when he eventually admitted it, he started crying. Oh, yeah. So I duly comforted him for having an affair on me. And then I duly comforted the woman he'd had an affair with as well, because there was a whole backstory to that too. So there I was comforting the both of them while six months pregnant. You know, so uh, yeah, crazy. Was, why were you comforting her? What was her? I think knowing the dynamic of that narcissistic relationship, I was a, an innate people pleaser, that codependent. Code and, you know, seeing my husband cry, well, I wanted to make that better. And when I eventually spoke to this, this woman, um, I wasn't even angry at her because I was still, even though I was comforting my husband, I was still very much aware she probably only knew what he had told her as well. So I, you know, I've never been one of those women who has been kind of like, oh, the other woman or anything else. I have never been like that because I'm very aware that, you know, people will believe what they're being told by somebody and people can be very believable. So when I spoke to her, she had her own story about how she'd met my husband and she was missing her child, etc. There's a whole, and I ended up kind of feeling sorry for her. I could kind of understand why it had happened in some respects so to speak so I ended up comforting her and I think that was just really one of many moments that when I look back of how I behaved and and, sh and really highlighted my lack of own self-worth in those scenarios and you know even at that stage I ended up staying 
I didn't leave. But I suppose really deep down from that moment, I think that was really the pivotal moment where I felt like, you know, I almost died inside at that stage. You know, it was I was so focused on being a mum. Obviously, my daughter was born then and I was so focused on that. I, I wasn't working at the time. I was totally reliant on my husband financially. He was away a lot. So I was I, I was almost like a single mom in some respects then anyway. And then when he would come home, you know, it would be this like roller coaster all of the time. And there was I mean, there's so many other elements. And, it, and eventually when my daughter, um, I think she was two, she just turned. In fact, no, she was not quite three. And sadly, my mum passed away as well, just a year after my daughter was born. And in some respects, that probably prolonged us still staying together in some respects, because of that, that was such a big, again, traumatic experience for me. My mum was my rock. She really, really was. And um, when my mum passed away the following year from then, I remember it was it was in the August um, and my husband had been going away early for work quite a lot. And basically on the premise of I don't like seeing you this unhappy all of the time I'm going to go and stay with my friend and uh, and of course you know I was like well thank you you know thinking things you know we kept trying to have these conversations and they would never come and I just felt this shell of myself really I'd I wasn't looking at myself in the mirror I'd put on weight I was wearing gray clothes black clothes I felt I wanted to be invisible other than just being a mom that was literally my my sole purpose and then I remember and I've always said this there are always three ways to leave a narcissistic relationship one is you die in it and that can be actual suicide or you end up staying in it obviously for the rest of your life you know two is you manage to crawl away somehow but for me I wasn't even the one that left the marriage it was actually him and I remember it was on an August day and he said you know I'm I'm leaving but tell the kids um that I'm going to work early and I don't know what it was there was something inside of me on that I remember it was a Saturday and I just said no not this time you you know you tell them now my daughter was in bed at the time and my son was six so I remember he called my son in and literally told him within five minutes my son fell to the floor going no you know really upset and literally out the door he went and that was it and there I was then left picking the pieces up and that's kind of been how it's been for the last 11 years really since then in some respects but you know it was and I and I just remember thinking oh my god how am I going to survive financially that was the biggest thing at that stage how am I going to survive financially because I was really scared I didn't have any money and really then the following week as I was making phone calls I realized how much debt we were actually in as well which was over over a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that we were in and you know this culminated in 2013 of actually having my house repossessed as well and I'd got diagnosed with complex PTSD depression anxiety I was self-harming the tops of my thighs in trying to just distract away from the pain of feeling so worthless and again and I've always said this had it not been for my children at the time I probably wouldn't be doing this interview right now it was literally they were the only reason I was staying on this planet because everything else I'd lost my mom I'd lost my home you know I'd got no money I'd, my marriage had gone down the plug hole you know my husband had walked out and and again with a narcissistic marriage 
you think if you're going through a divorce that that would kind of be well let's get everything sorted and then everything you know will kind of settle down and actually with a narcissist it's the complete opposite the abuse often escalates because the children can be weaponized in that scenario as well and yeah it was just such a tough time and you know and I was just so at rock bottom and I remember thinking I was a podiatrist at the time. That was actually my back profession um, that I studied and, and that. So I, I then was working part-time running a clinic just on one day a week just to get some money in and that. But the money coming in didn't equal the money going out. And, and I remember um, after my house got repossessed, I hit 40 that year. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got two avenues to go down here. One, I can either just sit in and feel like this forevermore, having no money and just this is my life and blaming everybody else or I could try and do something about it I didn't know how but I could try and do something and I remember I started a home-based business around my podiatry you know just thinking well you know what an extra three four hundred dollars a month would make a real big difference and that just escalated I used Facebook and social media to build my business and literally it skyrocketed and but what I found was what I loved about the business was actually connecting with people and helping people. And I found that I was attracting a lot of others who'd been through divorces, abusive marriages. And that's the bit I loved. So I kind of retrained in everything as a therapist and as a coach in this space. And, you know, over the last number of years now, I've created, you know, a big community of people and programs and work one to one with people because I really didn't understand narcissism myself. I'd you know, my interpretation of the word was this Greek God who looked at his reflection and, and also as well, a lot of people think narcissists are just the ones who walk into the room and command attention and confidence. And whilst, yes, they can be a, you know, a grandiose narcissist there, you know, my ex was a covert narcissist. So that made it really challenging insofar as, you know, everyone found it really difficult to think he was how he was and what he did because it was all very covert. It was very much behind closed doors. So I felt like if I was telling people what he'd done and the situation that they were almost looking at me like, really, was it really that bad, honestly? And I almost felt like I was having to justify why I felt like that. And that's then when my love of trauma came in because, you know, I really realized that people don't understand trauma. They don't understand narcissism and that integrated all together. Yeah. You call it narcissistic trauma and you don't use the term. I don't know if you do ever never use it, but you don't talk about narcissistic abuse, right? You talk about the narcissistic trauma. Say more about that. You know, it is abuse. I mean, let, let's be honest, you know, narcissistic abuse is abuse and there's no getting away from that. But because I do a lot of positive psychology in the work that I do as well, I want to empower people to know that the power to heal and not feel the way that you do isn't in getting a PhD in narcissism and knowing every detail about what a narcissist is, does, acts, hoping you can find this epiphany as this reason why. Because, you know, yes, I absolutely agree. A level of education about narcissism is really important to kind of validate some of those experiences and really recognize all of that. But actually, when we talk about trauma, trauma isn't an event. It's not a person. So trauma isn't the narcissist. You know, the narcissist is the abuser. Trauma is actually what you say to yourself and hold in your body about the narcissist. So for me, my trauma wasn't my ex-husband. 
he was the catalyst and he was shining a light on it. My trauma was my ex-husband's behaving like this. That must mean I'm not good enough. And that's what my trauma was. That's why my perception of danger was anybody. And this wasn't necessarily just him. It was anybody in some respects, but you know, they're very good at doing this, that anybody then who triggered my kind of inner child wounds of not feeling good enough, my, my whole nervous system was like, danger, danger, danger. I would then go into my trauma responses of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn when we talk about narcissistic trauma and I would then present in a certain behavior and that behavior really was a lot of my protector parts me blending with those to try and protect myself from not feeling that pain of not feeling good enough so whilst the narcissist was kind of the person that for me as an adult shone a spotlight on why I felt the way that I did actually my trauma came from my childhood where my wound the kind of root cause you know that initial starting point of not feeling good enough came from which came from my dad who was very unemotional and never said I'm proud of you etc etc so my interpretation of that from my dad was I can't be good enough there is where the wound forms my brain goes that's really painful don't ever want to feel like that again so I then present to the world very much blended with my protector parts like people pleasing perfectionism you know high achieving self-harm emotional eating all of those all whilst my system is doing a wonderful job of trying to distract and soothe me away from feeling what my brain thinks would be the most pain which is I'm not good enough so the narcissist isn't necessarily the trauma it's my interpretation of that because my ex-husband hasn't changed you know we've been divorced a long time now And, you know, I still get the odd email and I mean, he's blocked on everything. It's very extreme modified contact. So, but I still get the odd, you know, abusive email and everything. And I don't get any kind of trigger in my body from that because he's not triggering in me. I'm not good enough anymore. My interpretation of my past experiences is I've completely changed that now with inner work. So whilst of course, it isn't nice receiving an email like that. My system doesn't recognize it as dangerous anymore because it's not taking me back to what my system used to think was a dangerous, deep pain to feel. I just see that as, you know, somebody who's trying to project their own pain onto me. And I'm very much obviously not receiving it like that anymore. And that's where the power comes in. So when we talk about narcissistic abuse, yes, it is abuse, absolutely, that you've had. But the trauma you are holding on to, the power for you not to feel the way you do about the abuse. You know, we can't change the abuse, but we can change your experience and what you say to yourself about the abuse. And that's the key element. And that's all to do with the body work, the somatic and cognitive element of healing. And and that's the work that you do with with your yes. clients. Because, I, you know, people say to me all the, how do I stop feeling? How do I stop you know, how do, how do I stop yeah. feeling this way? Or how do I stop letting him get to me? And how do I, and my response is always like, you got to do the trauma work, right? Because yeah. This is you and you're relating to this. Caroline has programs and all sorts of work that you can find on her website, carolinestrossen.com. And they're in the show notes. <laughs> and I really, I mean, it's so important, right? One of the things that I think is really interesting that you say is talking about the fact that it is your own trauma yeah. and that he will continue to he can, he will continue to abuse you. You can, you can control and modify as much as possible in terms of setting boundaries and protecting yourself, but an abuser will abuse. You can't stop that. But what you 
can stop right. is being a res- being a receptacle for it and having right. and having those responses but let's talk about that let's talk about the, the actual work of like yeah. ceasing to become <laughs> right? A a receptacle and not just a receptacle, right? Because that that sort of indicates that like, you know, my my lid is open or closed for this, right? Yes, you're going to set the boundaries. You're going to block them. You're going to do all of the things, but it's your own internal work. It is. I mean, I think, I mean, how I teach a lot, I do do a lot of psych education in what I do. So if you think about it, like I call it the traffic lights of tolerance. So if you think, Green is when we're in that driving seat, we're driving in our life and we're living our life as our true self in the present moment. And that's where we are. And that's where we want to be the majority of the time, you know, in the driving seat, in the present moment, living as our true self. Now, that moment we and the key word here is interpret and perceive, you know, that moment we interpret or perceive somebody's behavior or an event that is dangerous, Now, I know the narcissist, although I know obviously some behavior is actually dangerous if there's physical elements, but really, you know, my ex-husband wasn't actually life-threateningly dangerous to me. So we're really going back to that primal element of how we are built as human beings here. So if the goal is for us to be in the green lights, the way we're living as our true self in the present moment, that moment we perceive threat and danger say by the narcissist's behavior, what happens is our nervous system that will then react. We will go into normally a fight flight response first. So that's kind of like that yellow light where we go into our sympathetic, we flood our body with cortisol and adrenaline in anticipation of danger. And we'll go into the fight flight. And I always say fight flight is almost like when we feel really anxious or when we feel really, really angry, we're kind of that mobilized energy in our body. If we still perceive threat and danger, say from the narcissist, we'll then go into our red light and we'll go into freeze, we'll go into shutdown. We will then literally, everything goes to just to supporting our our major organs and that's when we'll feel exhausted we don't want to get out of bed often when we start judging ourselves feeling weak feeling powerless feeling lazy because we're so tired and actually all of that is a normal nervous system response all happening within our body to that perception of danger so when we think about those traffic lights for instance i now deal with my ex-husband in the green you know i'm my true self that doesn't mean he's not challenging and the behavior is not challenging. It's just my perception is I don't need to go into my yellow or red light because I don't perceive it as dangerous anymore. So I don't need to go into sympathetic or into dorsal vagal and go into shutdown, survival and freeze. So when people who are listening are thinking, well, how can I react? How can I do any of that? When you go into the yellow or the red light, you're no longer in the present moment. You've kind of gone back then to reliving because it's reminding you of past experiences and we react in the body. And actually you're reacting exactly in a most beautiful, wonderful way in that moment, but based on your interpretation of past experiences. And that's often from when you are a child. And of course, a child is always going to blame themselves. It's always going to, you know, we need a reason for everything. And as a child, most children will, the reason will always be, well, it must be because of me. I'm not good enough or I'm worthless or not important or unlovable. And that then creates that wound. So when we react and go into our yellow or red light in our traffic lights of tolerance as an adult, 
that is because it's reminding us of past experiences that haven't been processed yet through the body. We have a part of our brain called the limbic system. And in our limbic system, we have our amygdala, which is our fear center. It's like this smoke detector checking out for any danger all of the time. And then we also have our hippocampus, which is our long-term memory center. So as we're going through each day, our hippocampus then almost then timestamps it into the past and then we can go about our business the next day. But what can happen is this can get stuck and we don't process those memories into long-term memory. So For instance, when I now think about how my dad was with me as a child, I don't feel all of that activation in my body like I'm back there as that little girl. What I can do instead of reliving it in the present as the adult, I can remember it. That doesn't take away that it was hurtful as a child, but I don't react in my body as if I was living it right now and interpreting it like that now. You know, rather than now looking back at my dad thinking, oh, my dad was like that because I wasn't good enough and everything else. And I'm feeling like that. Now I can look back and think, ah, you know, it wasn't nice being that, but I now know my dad behaved like that because that was his capability as a parent because of what happened in his childhood. And he was just projecting that onto me. So same event when I look back, just a different experience then from my perception. And that's when we change it in the body. It's no good me just thinking it and looking back. It's about changing it on a visceral, deep nervous system level so that my hippocampus timestamps it into the past. So no matter how hard I try and activate myself over it now, I can't because it's in the past. I know that was me as a child. I am not that child anymore. I am an adult now. It doesn't take away that it wasn't nice, but it just means I now recognize that, you know, it wasn't me that's my interpretation now. It's not, and, and this is all when we when I do a lot of work with my clients, we do something around what's called reconsolidation of memory. So it's like we're cracking open that trauma capsule and that memory moment and changing it. So you're kind of in it and you can almost see where those wounds initially were formed, but we're changing your perception of that, that really deep somatic nervous system level. Yeah. It's like brainwashing, but like, but not, yeah, but not absolutely. in a gross way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't get people putting little probes on their head or anything. <laughs> Sometimes we're like, I do, I need, I need a brainwash. I fucking need a brainwash. I can't, you know? And so if it's consensual and safe, <laughs> Absolutely. And you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, and I think that visual element of it is so important. You know, I'm a very visual person when I teach and when I work with my clients and stuff, because I think when you can kind of understand these elements, that's why I use things like the traffic lights of tolerance. And, you know, we, we look at and then with the traffic lights of tolerance, when when I do I do what's called self navigation mapping with my clients. So we look at, OK, if you're in red and yellow on those traffic lights, what protector parts are there for you then as well? And that might be things like dissociation, self-harm, emotional eating, addictions, because they are there to stop you from feeling that pain. So, you know, it's a real parts integration with um, polyvagal theory, which is, you know, that whole element around sort of dorsal, ventral, vagal and sympathetic as well. So, you know, it sounds sciencey, but I think it's really important. I, I think nervous system health should be taught at school alongside reproductive systems so we can really you know I think if we did that we'd so understand there'd be far less shame and judgment and so much more compassion and kindness in the world you know they really would brilliant oh my god I can't imagine how different my life would be if I had understood (laughs) nervous system work 
Oh my God. I spent 40 years thinking everything was my fault. And I, I spent so long thinking if someone was not happy in my presence, even if it was nothing to do with me why they were unhappy, if they didn't leave my company being happy, I'd failed and I needed to make sure that they were happy and I needed to fix them and make sure everything was okay. And that came from my innate need to please people and to be kind of liked. Um, And I was always looking for that external approval and validation. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is what we now call codependency, right? We talk about codependency and it, and it, it has had such a negative connotation, right? Like, like we're weak, we're this, we're that. Really, codependency is trauma. The root of all codependency is trauma. Correct. It's an addiction. You know, it's that addiction to that validation. And we we produce different chemicals in our body. You know, how I see actually a narcissist and a codependent, because narcissists are actually codependents as well, just further down the line. So I do a lot of internal family systems in the work that I do, an evidence-based parts therapy. So when I look at the labels of narcissist and codependency, you know, how I see them is I I don't necessarily go down the route of the medicalization of narcissistic personality disorder and that only because it almost excuses behavior then we're kind of saying, well, it's not their fault. It's this. And, you know, and in some respects, again, narcissists aren't born. They are created again from childhood trauma as well. So yes, we can understand and explain doesn't absolutely excuse though at all. You know, abuse is not excusable at all. But from the perspective of what a codependent or indeed a narcissist is, how I see this comes from my internal family systems lens. So we all have that true self, that person who is sort of compassionate and curious and creative, um, you know, that that person who ideally is in the present moment. And then we have these wounds, which we call exiles in internal family systems, which is kind of the pain that we don't want to feel. And that normally is that that younger wounded part of us that has the sort of beliefs and burdens that carries and gets stuck in our system. Then we have these protector parts like my mind with people pleasing, etc., which are very much prevalent with a codependent. So for me, codependency is really an individual's collective term for their protector parts that come up in the fight flight freeze of our nervous system so if you think about it when we perceive that threat and danger and we're not in the green light of our traffic lights of tolerance and we move into our fight flight and freeze so into the yellow and the red light that's when our protector parts will come up and we blend with that and that then the collective term really for your protector parts when we have that lack of self is codependent Equally, an individual's protector parts that are abusive, the collective term I would call a narcissist, for instance, as well. So all have a true self. It just sadly with a narcissist, we can never get to the true self because there's no ownership of subjective distress or anything like that. With a codependent, we can do that. But actually, for me, the labels of codependent and narcissist are really collective umbrella terms for an individual's protector parts that are really in their fight, flight, freeze of their nervous system that are there for a reason because of an initial wound that formed in childhood. 
and that's really how I see that um, as well so it, it is a lack of self it's not you living as your true self you become blended with those protector parts really to distract and soothe you away from a pain that you felt when you were a kid that your system just thinks is the worst pain and you can't ever go there and that that's what I think we label that codependent then for lots of those protector parts and that's when we can say okay yeah that's where codependency yeah. is and then what we love to do as codependents right is that and I'm gonna I'm gonna like flag this for the listeners right now because what we love what codependents love to do is go oh so it's a wound so it's his wound that's making him do this right so in my codependent protector part what I can do then is help him (laughs) all of my all of my tools of my my protector parts and right to to soothe and heal him and then he will not then he will not And what you highlight there beautifully is that codependent narcissist magnet. So the codependence protector parts are, please, I'll fix you. I'll make it all better. Because then if you do make it better, that's going to soothe the codependent wound of not being good enough. And I'll be okay. Correct. And then the narcissist, of course, has that wound as well and needs to take, take, take. Because if I have somebody who is doting on me and being all of this wonderful person, then that must mean I am. And that's going to soothe my wound then in that respect. And that's why it's like a magnet. You know, the codependent's going to give, 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 give. And the narcissist is going to take, 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 take. And initially at the starting point, it's like a match made in heaven because they're both soothing each other's wounds in some respects. However, the problem with a narcissist that happens is nothing is ever good enough. So, you know, that codependent is going to keep on trying and trying and trying and at some stage you know it it just won't be good enough for a narcissist and that's then where I always say it's like then the codependence wound is bleeding it is absolutely bleeding at that stage and that's when you really have other parts coming up for a codependent like dissociation could be addiction self-harm what eating disorders because again desperately trying to distract you away from feeling like this person I'm with I'm not good enough they're cheating on me they're being abusive to me, they're manipulating this coercive behavior, you know, and whilst a narcissist is doing that again to try and soothe their own wounds, it absolutely doesn't excuse abusive behavior. We can explain it, but not excuse it. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. That codependent almost wants to fix that. And I was the same. I could look at my ex-husband and think, oh, he didn't have a, he never had a birthday party growing up. And I could, and I could, I want to fix that and make it, I'm going to have these big birthday parties or whatever. (laughs) And make it all great and stuff. But then I'd do these lovely, wonderful birthdays and then I'd kind of get nothing back. And then that would be like, well, hold on. So, so, you know, and that's when that, that real abuse cycle starts to perpetuate then as well. Yeah. And in my case, you know, I would do the over the top things to, for, for helping and healing and all of that stuff. And then I kind of get told all the ways in which it, you know, it wasn't quite right. Yeah. Right. If I had just done it this way and this way and this way, and then I, the next time I would do it this way, this way, and this way, it is literally never enough. Yeah. It's like you're seeking this goal that is unattainable and you just think you're near the finish line and about to get it. And then it gets moved again. And you're like, oh, okay. And what happens for us, right, is that we're so focused on the goal. We're so focused on the target. We're so focused on the other person that we, we become, as you said, like a shell of ourselves. We are, there's nothing left of us, whether that's, you know, physically emotionally, psychologically, because we spent, we have spent all of our energy trying to fill this hole that's actually bottomless. 
absolutely it is and and I think that's where if we're always looking at the narcissist to change their behavior and I did this for so long I was waiting for this apology that still has never come I'm still waiting and it still never come you know but I desperately wanted some acknowledgement of what he'd done and how he'd behaved and and it just never came and and that was just heartbreaking to me because then, of course, if it never came, you would start to question yourself. Well, is it me? And I get so many messages from people saying, is it me? Am I the actual narcissist in all of this? And I always say no, because no narcissist is ever going to ask that question. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor, me. Once you've decided to get a divorce, you may feel a sense of relief that the decision is finally made. But at the same time, you likely feel a sense of foreboding of what's ahead. There's a huge mountain left to climb. And if you've never gotten divorced before, especially divorced with kids, there's a lot that you don't know. You need a deep dive into the divorce process stat. That's exactly why I created the Divorce Survival Program. In the Divorce Survival Program, you'll learn how to have the most difficult conversations of your life with your husband, your children, friends, family, and even nosy neighbors. You'll learn to set healthy boundaries in high and low-conflict divorces. You'll learn how the legal and financial processes really work, whether you should or can seek support, and you'll be taken through the process of emotional healing. And of course, you'll learn how and when to start dating on the other side. In this first-of-its-kind program, I bring together guest experts from around the country who share their wisdom in exclusive interviews not available anywhere else. In the Divorce Survival Program, I have conversations with legal and financial experts, child psychologists, sex and dating experts, and more. And of course, there are over 20 videos in which I speak directly to you, answering your most pressing questions questions. The Divorce Survival Program is a self-paced online program available for purchase now at the ridiculously low price of just $497. And there's a payment plan if you need it. Head on over to divorcesurvivalprogram.com and sign up today. That's divorcesurvivalprogram.com. And now back to our show. For those of us who have lived it, and, and work with this professionally, it's so predictable, right? We, it's just such a predictable cycle and watching it from the outside is, I mean, you know, it, it can, for me, it's still very triggering because I, I still have, I think a lot of those wounds that have not quite, <laughs> you know, my boundaries have had to get stronger and stronger and stronger over the years, you know, so it can be really triggering to watch, but also it's so painful to watch this in the world, right? Because this is an epidemic. It is, and it's really sad. And I think, you know, there's there's two elements to that. One, obviously, us as bystanders watching somebody else in a, in a narcissistically abusive relationship, you know, and, and I, I've done videos on this about, you know, as well-meaning friends and family members who desperately see that their loved one is in this abusive relationship and want to try and get them out. And they're saying to them, you must leave, you must go. And actually, that's the worst thing to say. And I know people are doing it with the bestest of intentions. But again, if you go back to where their nervous system is, let's say somebody's in their red light, freeze, you know, they are feeling not good enough, they're dissociated. So their wound is I'm not good enough and their whole system is trying for them not to feel like that. And then they've got well-meaning friends and family saying, well, you know, if it's that bad, just leave then. 
and then they don't leave they stay what they then think is well I'm even weaker than I thought I was now I'm even more powerless I'm even more not good enough and actually what ends up happening is they isolate themselves even more because they feel even more like a failure they feel you're just it's almost like just reinforcing and actually Again, if you look at it through a trauma-informed lens, somebody who stays in that narcissistically abusive relationship, to their nervous system, having the breadcrumbs of love from a narcissist, it actually feels safer to them in their system staying than if they left and they had nobody. You know, if they had nobody, well, you're really not good enough then. At least if you're in a relationship, albeit an abusive one, and you're getting breadcrumbs, at least that's better than nothing. So when people stay in these abusive relationships, it's actually often because their nervous system thinks it's safer to stay in that relationship. Now, of course, as bystanders, you could think, well, that's crazy. How can they think that? And this is when judgment in society comes up because we're judging them on what we would do based on our thoughts and experiences at that moment. But we don't know what has happened to them in their past, in their childhood. What wound do they have that they think it's safer to stay and it's it's and and they will know that they should leave of course people do at some stage but people still stay and i think you know rather than actually judging others on what they're doing whether they're staying or anything what we should be thinking was okay what happened to you to think it's acceptable for you to stay? And, and if we kind of know those core wounds are coming from a place of lack of self, not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy, if as friends and family, we work on that and really try and just to install their confidence and really help them feel that, they're then much more likely to make their own decision about when the right time and, and safely, you know, key is safety and all of this for them to actually leave too. Because I, I know certainly from a domestic abuse perspective, sort of looking at the stats, on average, it takes seven times for somebody to leave, go back, leave, go back, leave and go back. And that's before that first time is taken. I think it's 58 times before they even leave the first time. And also in the first seven days of leaving an abusive relationship, that's actually when the most homicides occur as well so we right. have to be really you know that there, there are so many things we have to be careful with around all of this from the safety of that person not judging them supporting them just being there in that safe space so that they know when they are ready you are there but you're not going to judge them if it's another year if you feel like and I've said this many times to family members and friends if you are then feeling activated and dysregulated that your friend or family member hasn't left that's where you need to go and do your inner work then because you're bringing your agenda to the table as well and you have to then take a step back that's when you need to be in yourself your true self when you're supporting your friend and family member and if you know there's a part coming up like you're feeling like well why aren't they leaving you need to go and do that work separately because that's your inner work that you need to do then as well Oh my God. So true. So true. And so important. There, there's something about like doing the work while in the trauma, right? Like we, it's, it's almost, can people heal, do this work and heal these wounds while they're still in the narcissistic trauma while they're in this, like, and this is where the catch 22 comes, right? It's very difficult. Very, very. I always say there are three stages um, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist for healing 
that first stage is really about managing the symptoms of that activation of being in that relationship. It's very difficult to heal when you're in that relationship because it's it, it's almost like a drug addict wandering around with an intravenous drip, you know, of the drug of your choice. It's very difficult. And, and I, I've never seen anyone do that. So it's almost thinking about it in stages. So the first stage is building yourself up to a stage. And that's all about resourcing, really. So really helping you stay as present as possible so that whilst you know it's not a great situation, it's just enough staying in the front part of the brain as your true self in the present moment to maybe make some decisions about what you want to do. So that's just really when you're in it, it's about safety and resourcing and being present. So creating is conducive an environment for that to occur. The second stage is obviously we have then left that relationship. But normally I say, and this can normally be the first year to 18 months, it could be legal issues, finances, children, whatever there is. And, you know, it, it's never easy with a narcissist. I mean, divorce at the best of times is not is a traumatic experience anyway. Factor a narcissist in, then you can kind of times it by a million with that too. So, you know, the second stage is we can start the healing process and looking at root cause. We're working still on that resourcing lot of strategy as well of how we're managing obviously you know whether that's at court whether that's child contact or whatever and then once we've got kind of everything in place that doesn't mean the narcissist has gone away it just means we've kind of got a a strategy in place then of child contact finances everything else that's when you can really start to escalate your healing then so I kind of say it's in three stages like that really too and each stage is certainly the stages I went through. Everybody goes through those. There's no judgment on how quick you need to go through that or you're a failure if you stay with that person for this amount of time or this time in stage two. It really doesn't matter. And I think, you know, it's not about judgment. This is just about support and meeting each person with where they are at um, as well. How do you how do you co-parent with someone like this, right? <laughs> when you get divorced, you don't have kids like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And everyone says, right, the only way to heal from this is to go no contact. And when you have children, you can't go completely no contact. And often, you know, there are lots of phenomenal apps out there that can help with with this. But getting a narcissist to agree to use one is a whole other thing, right? How do you co-parent? How do you support your children around these relationships too? So firstly, you can't co-parent with a narcissist. And and one of the things, you know, and this is something I'm even working on now and something I want to work towards is that when people go through a divorce, I think the starting point should be what's called parallel parenting. Then if you want to choose to be best buddies with your ex-partner and co-parent, great, do that if you want to. But let's not demonize and shame those that are unable to do that. Not because they wouldn't do that, but because the other person is counterproductive in enabling that co-parenting relationship. You know, I think one of the, the sad things that I see all the time is these divorces are labeled as high conflict. And both of you are labeled as argumentative or high conflict. And, you know, and that obviously triggers the wounds again of you not feeling good enough, you know, because of how the narcissist will set up the dynamic of that parenting relationship. So it looks like both of you are behaving like that. And and it's not, you know, I certainly know at the start, I would have happily co-parented, even though he'd done what he did. I still was committed to really putting the children at the heart of our divorce and whatever he'd done to me. 
I was, you know, that was separate. That was a separate issue. And to be fair, that's the same with most people that I work with. You know, there's not many, I would say, that ever want to deliberately stop another parent from seeing the child or anything else. It's a story, obviously, abusers will say, but very often it isn't like that. So the first thing is you can't co-parent. So we have to what's called parallel parenting. So parallel parenting is really disengaging from the other parent. Now, we have to be mindful here because we have to tick the boxes of, say, what a court or, you know, what is the ideal to be seen as. So we still have to do certain things. So I always teach my clients to, you know, we set up a, a real extreme modified contact. Now, you mentioned absolutely there's great parenting apps out there that you can utilize. But again, sometimes a narcissist won't use those. Now, they will if you don't use anything else. And I think this is the key here, because very often you back down and you think, well, have they messaged me? Do they know this? So you'll get a sneaky look on a text or a sneaky look here and stuff. Whereas actually often if they know I am not communicating unless it is on that and you hold to that, eventually they will. They will eventually. But but that's again, right. that's when you need that support because most people would back down if they haven't got that support. But if you don't want to use the apps, because sometimes they, they do cost and they're not, not expensive really, but I get it. Sometimes money can be an issue. What I always suggest to my clients is a number of things. One is, um, and I get, if they have the children and vice versa, you need an emergency contact. You know, if there's ever an emergency with the children, you need that. So I always say, block on the phone you use regularly, block completely go and buy a really old like nokia brick phone that you can get for like 10 20 dollars or whatever and that's like your emergency phone it's not one to text because it would take you 10 hours even to send like two lines on a text with those because you're having to do all the numbers so, so it kind of stops you from doing that so really that phone is purely if there was an emergency then you've got a phone number that you can get hold of me then the email now even the email, you, we can be really specific here. This is not an email where you give them your regular email. So when you're on your phone and you've got your emails coming in during the day and all of a sudden one from then is going to pop up in that. I always advise my clients, block them on email, but set up a completely separate email address only for them, only for them. And then you schedule twice a week, three times max, where you're going to go in and check that email. So that might be 24 hours before maybe the children have contact, maybe immediately after they've had contact, and maybe one other time. I normally say twice, because that's enough. If you've got a schedule set in place, there is no need while you need to have other communication. And then if you need to set up, you know, hospital appointments or anything else, then you can just directly email and and it's not about waiting for replies. It's it, it's very factual. It's very unemotional. It's just literally, it's almost like your children are your business. And right. I always say, that's how you need to treat it in some respects. If you wouldn't go into a boardroom and kind of be, you know, crying or swearing or shouting, that's how you have to behave as if they, your children are a business arrangement. But you can do this in still a way that to the courts and everyone else, You've still got the communication. You're still communicating because they like you to communicate bizarrely, um, effectively. And then also the phone. You know, I mean, here in the UK, we've even had things recently where they said at child contact, you need to make eye contact with each other so your children can see that you've got eye contact. I mean, for me, uh, the whole system is so not trauma informed in all of that. You know, you never say to a child, go and make eye contact with the abuser 
you know, if you have to go and see them once a week or something like that. And, it, and it's exactly the same thing. You know, we shouldn't be making these people who, you know, have been abused make eye contact. You know, I certainly know from my children's perspective, my children know me and their dad don't get on and they they know that. And, and just as you said, you know, how do you manage that? And how I manage that is I've always separated my relationship with him as them. And actually, there's a lot of stuff, not that my ex-husband would believe it necessarily, where I've said, have you, you know, have you spoken to your dad, you know, and things. They don't want to. And one of the key phrases that I, I think is just a really good one for maybe the listeners to, to recognize is when the kids come back and, you know, normally they might be anxious, they might be more aggressive, they might be behaving in a certain way and saying, oh, you know, dad or mum has done this. I never then say, well, they shouldn't have done that. You know, I never say that. What I always try and do is say, well, why do you think they did that? Hmm. I will always try and put it back onto the kids. Now, they may not know the answer at that stage or anything, but I want to, I, I work really hard to empower my children to understand that their dad's behavior was no reflection of them. So whilst they love their dad's bits, and they do, they love their dad, but they totally get their dad's behavior is nothing to do with them. And I think that has been really, really key. So I like to think I've role modeled sort of self-love to them to show boundaries, but equally, you know, they could do and communicate whenever they wanted with their dad. They've chosen to not much anymore. They don't really see or speak to him very much now. Their choice. And, you know, I mean, they're older now, they're sort of 17 and 13 now, but even at the start, they would come back, like just before they went, we'd always have a lot of anxiety. There'd be a lot of tension. And then when they came back, it would be the same. And I used to get really angry at that because I thought, oh, it's all right. You know, Disney dad is doing all these great stuff. And then I'm getting the brunt of the behavior. But this was before I understood trauma. You know, when if you think about the traffic lights again, and we go, it's a hierarchy. So we have safe and connected in green. Then we have our sympathetic fight and flight in yellow and then we have the freeze in the red light what happens is when they are with you obviously they're hopefully in green uh, maybe just before they go they start dipping into yellow the sympathetic because there's that perception of danger coming up of being with the other parent they go to the other parent they dip down into red so they kind of go into please mode fawn mode and again to the outside world it might look like they, they're fine there they're behaving really really well but they're actually in a freeze trauma response when they're with the other parent to stay safe and then when they come back to you back up the lights they go back into yellow where they're back obviously mobilize more energy it might seem they're a little bit more anxious or angry or crying but actually that's because they feel safer with you so when we understand this through a trauma-informed lens just because it looks like they're behaving really really well with the narcissistic parent very often that's because they're in a freeze trauma response and they're being very appeasing to the you know, other parent to try and stay safe. And then when they come back to you where they feel safer, they're just mobilizing the energy and then we're back to the green light again. And that's kind of how that hierarchy of our nervous system works. So good. 
So good. I we could talk about this all day. I think oh, I'm going to have to have you back on so we can have an a part two. <laughs> I have way more questions. I I love this. I love this. Where can people find you? So obviously you mentioned my website, um, and then I'm on Instagram and Facebook. They're probably the places most people come and connect with me. Really, where I've, I've got a big free group as well, and and obviously like you mentioned some programs and one to one work. You know, but a lot of the stuff that I do on social media is very much around education so I've got a YouTube channel and a podcast as well the narcissistic trauma recovery podcast so you know I've got a lot lots of free stuff out there um, as well obviously if people want to dive a little bit deeper with me as well I love it thank you so much this has been so enlightening I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have learned a ton (laughs) so thank you so much thanks for tuning in to another episode of the divorce survival guide podcast If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.